You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Marty Horowitz, MD, is a professor of psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco, as well as director of the Center on Stress and Personality at the Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute. His first book is A Course in Happiness. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Horowitz. You're welcome. Want you start this book out with your experiences, and in particular, some time you spent in uh, Alaska uh, that helped you find clarity. I think clarity is one of the main themes of this book. It is. Uh, seeing the world as it is with a kind of lucid lens and clear ears starts you on the path. Now, um, you have a, some, some interesting kind of structures for us to, to approach a path to happiness. And one of them is are the three I's, integration, intimacy, and integrity. Um, let's start with the first one, integration. Could you tell me what you mean by integration? Well, Integration is the difficult and usually lifelong task of trying to put oneself into a kind of harmonious organization. We're composed of many parts of ourself, and they're not necessarily born to be in harmony. Now, you talk about three levels of integration. Could you explain what each of those levels are and maybe where you find most people? Well, a hard thing uh, in the field of psychiatry and psychology, and even in literature, is to define what a normal person is. (laughs) That's certainly true. And uh, a normal person is not necessarily a person who's reached a high level of integration of their self. They're usually a a person, however, that can recognize that they may have uh, contradictory urges and contradictory ideas, and they can accept that about themselves. That is, they know it. Now, now, could you talk about um, people who, whose level of uh, integration is what you call discordant? What kind of person is that, and where can they go? A, a person who's discordant may have uh, explosive changes in their mental state, and they may have very choppy and seemingly explosive changes in their relatedness to others because they may all of a sudden shift from one view of who they are and how they articulate with the world to some other quite different one, even from good to bad, or bad to good, for that matter. Now, um, people who are discordant, the, the, the next level up is what you call conflicted. And, and you talk about something that I find really interesting, because I know a lot of people who have experienced this, is repeated relationship patterns. What are those, and, and how do we identify them? Well, most of us, uh, especially as we hit around 30, 
are still at a conflicted level. In fact, some people go through life at a conflicted level. And uh, by a conflicted level, I mean that they haven't uh, articulated different views of relationships. So what uh, I refer to repeatedly in the book is repetition, the repetition of a maladaptive interpersonal pattern. People often talk about themselves shooting themselves in the foot again, or there I went again, or there I'm about to go again. And uh, by uh, raising that intuition that I, I, I'm beginning to see I have this pattern, I'm beginning to see that I don't want to continue it, but I don't see how to stop it. Uh, by raising that intuition into lucid thinking about it in a very calm and not too critical state of mind, then the person can begin to reduce the impact of their conflicts on their degree of satisfaction in life. So uh, A Course in Happiness deals with uh, 10 lessons that seek to accomplish that aim. Now, one thing that really interests me about this book, A, a Course in Happiness, is that it takes happiness seriously. I mean, it, 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 happiness used to be, I think, more, I guess, elusive or, or um, not really seen by, by psychology, psychiatry as, uh, you know, a, a state. Could you talk about that change? Has that happened recently or am I? No, I think you're quite right that for the past 20 years, there has been a whole movement in scientific psychology called positive psychology. And in it, people have learned to try and find the things that can facilitate not only, let's say, reduced anxiety and depression, reduced fear, shame, and guilt, but how can people increase uh, self-esteem, satisfaction, um, a sense of grace, a sense of compassionate being with other people. These are perennial themes. I mean, they go back as far as chants and rituals and then recorded history, uh, uh, the reduction of suffering, the establishment of peace and compassion, kindness in the world. Um, but the scientific study of uh, the mental processes that are involved has been happening really in the last hundred years. Now, um, one of the things I think that's really key to your whole um, course of happiness is getting a, a clear, calm picture uh, of yourself. And, and you could, so could you talk about, um, one of the things you talk about are the three ways to describe yourself, ideal, derogatory, and realistic. Could you expand on that for me? Yes, that's, um, I use that method that method in several different lessons in A Course in Happiness because um, in the course of understanding how people change towards more happiness in psychotherapy, for example, uh, in order to have a, a kind of calm, lucid re-examination of things that are often fraught with negative feelings, uh, it helps to raise the attitude uh, to a, a clear statement and to compare and contrast the statements. So, for example, uh, taking uh, even a view of self um, and say, well, what's the most catastrophic aspect of that particular negative, dark, clouded view of yourself? Well, I'm a total failure, and I'll never amount to anything, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to work, but I'll procrastinate, and, 
And so I'm, I'm just worthless, basically. Now, that's uh, unrealistic. And it, it's clearly unrealistic when a person is then asked for the evidence of this total catastrophic view of self. But I don't think it's good to stop there, of course. So I say, well, that, that's a nice fantasy to get rid of. But let's talk about a nice fantasy that's really totally fantastic, idealistic, what's what, what's uh, a glorious view of yourself? Well, I'm uh, creative, I'm talented, I'm handsome, I'm uh, sexually irresistible, um, and I uh, probably am immortal also and immune to germs. Well, that's a terrific fantasy. Now, in between those two extremes, where would you th say things might actually be? And by, by um, kind of casting these extremes, even into a, a kind of humorous light, uh, just to show that they are extremes then it helps people say what's very difficult for people to say, which is, what do they want? What do they think about their desires in terms of what's realistic pos realistically possible to make plans to get there step by step? One of the things that, that you, you also talk about um, is this uh, tools for self-examination. And how, could you talk about preparing for a calm contemplation where you're aware of your feelings, but not, they don't distract you? One has to learn how to learn. So the learning from the kind of exercises I go through in a course in happiness include not only finding out what to learn and what to unlearn, but how to do that. And part of that is developing skills at self-observation. And those skills are often best done uh, in a state of solitude not necessarily hours and hours of um, hibernating in a cave or something, but taking 10 minutes or 20 minutes, uh, turning off the cell phone, avoiding distractions. But most important of all, developing a mental set for what one's going to do, which is just think it through, like give a, give a, a given topic that one's decided to think about, a period of time which is devoid of um, a, a set of... Uh, toxic enders, things that short-circuit useful thinking like um, righteous indignation. I'm entitled to be X, Y, Z, and it's unjust that I'm not. Well, that, that stops a useful train of thought right there. And the other one is usually uh, harsh self-judgment. I've always made this mistake. I'll always make it. Um, I'm hopeless. One of the things I really liked about uh, this book was your your uh, idea of turning off the inner critic with, with awe. Could, could you explain that? That's a really great idea, I think, and, and it seems very like a, a workable way for us to approach things. Well, um, part of the um, thing that's always helped me in my life has been curiosity and attention to just interesting detail, the way the light falls on a leaf. Uh, the way you can see uh, paper curl up in the puddle of a roadside. 
That is, if you if you can remember as a child how you felt wonderment and just how things worked. Water comes out of a spigot if you turn the the handle. You know, it's amazing. And if you if you can take that attitude towards your own mind, even when it's having weird bad thoughts, isn't that amazing what the mind could come up with that weird bad thought? Then uh, you're turning off some of the uh, the harsh criticism that's uh, debilitating to self-esteem. And you're just saying, oh, so the mind can do that. When you're caught up in some of these weird bad thoughts, you talk about um, righteous indignation and, and self-pity. Your inner sense is that those are true. How do you disconnect from the, those kind of feelings from the truth when when you're in the grip of them? Well, truth is uh, a variable thing. The the best truth is that which we can agree on, but we also agree on a lot of illusions. <laughs> uh, so it, it's an important distinction in kind of expanding the mind on these things to think about uh, psychological reality. Uh, the thoughts are there, and that's a psychological reality. It doesn't mean they have to be there all the time, as maybe an eternal truth or verity would suggest. It's uh, it's a real feeling, and it can go away. And it can be endured for a time, even if it's painful. And it's not likely to be entirely permanent if one uh, takes certain actions against it. So that it's not that one can dismiss certain thoughts as being untrue, but one can re-examine them to see, well, in what state of mind are they relatively true? Taking a relativistic approach, what might be more true than this true? Uh, and then one gets into uh, one of the other important topics of the three eyes, which is uh, integrity, which deals with how to sort out one's values so that one has kind of a priority of what good thing is better than what other good thing. You have in this book a number of exercises and, and some nice, you know, uh, toolkits, mental toolkits for us to approach happiness. Could you talk about developing these in the in your practice and writing them down and turning them into a book? I mean, it, when we see the book, it's a fait accompli. It's it seems perfect, like it was always there, and it's like you just etched it out of the out of the pages, <laughs> and, and what was left over was the perfect book. But it must have been very difficult to come up with this. Well, that's why I didn't write it when I was young, <laughs> <laughs> as much as I would have liked to. But I've written uh, 17 books for professional audiences, most of them centered around how people change in the course of psychotherapy. And that's been my, uh, my research, my clinical, and my teaching interest. And I teach a range of people from medical students, psychiatric residents, psychologists, so, uh, tr psychoanalysts in training. And I've always tried to uh, create a, a lucid statement, um, not only about what might cause a problem, but how, how do you recover from the problems. So A Course in Happiness really takes an approach on happiness that is stress mastery, and my field has been how do, how do you get over a trauma? So uh, by understanding both the conscious and unconscious mental processes, and how to affect some of the unconscious intuitions that we have by conscious contemplation, I've, I've taken the lessons that my patients changing for the better have taught me and tried to put it into as, as clear and interesting a prose, which I hope uh, 
comes across to the reader. And I, that's why I've put in so many stories, just to say, well, could, could you maybe change like this person does in the story that I have? One of the things that, that I think uh, is interesting is this idea of um, maturity and immaturity. That's, again, that's something, again, almost like happiness that, that isn't often, I think, uh, addressed in, in books like this. And, and you address it directly when you talk about the, the way each of them uh, greets the future. Well, the, the place that change is going to take place is in the next bit of the future. That is, uh, we, we are creatures that live by what we've been taught and the habit patterns we've developed for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, if we're going to use our minds, our conscious minds, as a wonderfully evolved evolutionary tool, what those tools do is they make us more effective in terms of plans we make right now and plans that we can rehearse and repeat, and that can change the future. So I, I'm kind of like um, very much pro what our forefathers said about founding the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, it's okay to pursue happiness, and uh, it doesn't mean you're going to get there, but you need to set your sights forward and consider some of the satisfactions you ought to be striving for. And the book then tries to deal with some of the obstacles, some of the many obstacles that each of us tend to put in the way of our own striving. You have a number of exercises in, in, in the book. And could you talk about developing these exercises um, and maybe pick one, describe it to us, and tell us how you developed it over the course of, of years of uh, therapy and practice? Well, we already mentioned one, which was the three scenarios mm -hmm. method. I think I uh, probably got that from my mother who read me the three bears, Goldilocks <laughs> and the three bears. You know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too long, it's too short. And, but there's something that's just right. And... Um, um, I d developed uh, that one in terms of helping uh, people get through their obstacles. I mean, that is, people would often just repeat the negatives, or they would insist on just saying, you've got to enable me to get to this ideal position. And they would always have this mismatch between what their skill set was, what their toolkit was, and some ambition that they had, or some grievance that they wanted to write. And it just didn't work. They were, it was kind of a misalignment. And so the exercises were how not only to help people conceptualize what, would, might, what might be a harmony or an alignment of their skills with their goals, but also how to learn to think that through for themselves so that everyone, let's say when they would finish uh, with a period of psychotherapy, they're going to have more stresses and crises in their life. They're going to go right back into the human predicament. And so the question is, could they handle it better? So that's why the exercises come out of the exercises that help people master stress. So one of the exercises I call the, uh, the five R's, which is you, you select something that, that is a little upsetting or maybe very upsetting to think about, a memory perhaps, maybe a memory where you lapsed. I have a whole chapter on personal lapses in A Course in Happiness. And then how do you think about that? Well, first you decide to reconsider it in a calm frame of mind without excessive criticism. And then you kind of try and reperceive 
what happened? What were the cause and effect sequences? That's the second R, reconsider, reperceive. Uh, reinterpret, what, what were the other person's intentions? What were your intentions? How did things go haywire? And then revise, so if you could do it all over again, which you will be able to in the future probably, get the same situation in the future, uh, how can you uh, revise your plan? And then you rehearse that. The rehearsal's a, a part that people often leave out. You have to come to a new intentionality, but you have to really repeat and repeat and repeat that. I guess that would be the sixth R. Uh, and uh, just having those things as, as a guideline, as just a template for thinking through things that are hard to think through, I think helps people slowly, but slowly they change. The second I, and we haven't talked about this, is intimacy. And this is because important, obviously, because this connect, connectedness to other human beings, being having a connection to other human beings is really key to our, our happiness. Um, could you talk about the common fears of intimacy that, are, that you talk about in the book? Well, the, um, the commonest ones, not all in one person, but the commonest ones one hear about uh, concern power and control. Mm -hmm. Either um, I will overpower the other person and smother them, and then they won't be very interesting. <laughs> or they'll overpower and smother me, and they'll control me, and I won't be creative or free to do what I want. Um, uh, so issues of uh, being entrapped uh, by one's own love. And then another one is uh, the risks of love, which are very true. If you love someone, you're vulnerable to losing them, really. Um, people exaggerate it, and they're afraid of losing people that they're not likely to lose, but they get rid of the person in order that they don't suffer the passivity of being abandoned. And uh, these attitudes um, about power, control, loss, abandonment um, are often associated with um, problems of anger. I mean, we, r rightfully, people are running uh, scared of their anger and other people's angers because... No relationship can uh, be intimate and enduring and constant without some ambivalence. We don't always want to do what the other person wants us to do, and vice versa. And so it's the learning to tolerate and handle and soften uh, the approach and avoidance that we all feel towards each other. Schopenhauer had this interesting analogy about that people are like porcupines. They, they're very lonely if they're isolated, and they try and get close, and then they stick each other with their quills, <laughs> and then they have to back off. So uh, it's learning how to be intimate, even though a bit of a porcupine, uh, that uh, is, is a part of maturity and, and, and learning wisdom. you also talk about, and I think this is really important because I've found myself in this position, is the difficulty of actually apologizing. Yes, that's where the, the solitude is sometimes helpful because once you've arrived at a plan that maybe an apology 
is in order, <clears throat> then those three scenarios sometimes help. Like, well, what would be a catastrophic apology where it really ends up really badly? And what would be an ideal apology, but you don't want to apologize quite that much? <laughs> and then <clears throat> what would be a realistic apology? How would you actually word it? And then, <clears throat> then practice it and then, then do it. But uh, part of the skills I'm trying to help readers develop in themselves is how do you observe how the other person is taking it moment by moment as you actually are apologizing? What are their verbal and nonverbal signals? How do you modify what you're doing in order to authentically try and recreate whatever degree of intimacy you want with that person? Yes, because it seems it's sometimes it's easy to come at somebody apologizing, but in so doing, you know, stick it to them again. And, and, yes. and that's, that's, I think, the, the trick that, that you talk about. That's one of those toxic twins um, because um, when blame is in the air, it's in the air, and there's a, a part of us that wants the other person to be to blame even if we're the ones that had a lapse or a goof. And it, you made me do it, is the common expression. And so part of the rehearsal and planning of how to, how, to, how to effectively and authentically declare that you want to regain a companionship and a truthfulness and a frankness, part of that is also being ready to uh, curb your excursion into uh, you made me do it, to, uh, to put all the blame on the other person for just a second. Well, let's posit that we're happy. We're, we've got a pretty good grip on things, and we're moving forward. But life isn't filled with happiness, and it's not filled with ease. And you're going to occasionally come across some, you know, really catastrophic roadblocks. Could you talk about the tools that you have for helping us cope with those kind of problems? Right. I um, take in A Course in Happiness the um, stance that the road to happiness or to being able to pursue happiness effectively is one through the mastery of stress. And so in the first, I uh, guess what it is, eight chapters, I'm sort of working up to the ninth chapter, which deals with uh, issues such as disability and death. And um, <clears throat> I've already dealt with some issues like mourning and um, handling grievances and lapses. But those issues, uh, uh, for example, uh, one of the cases is a uh, story of a um, surgeon who develops macular degeneration, and basically there's no treatment um, for his particular variety of it. He has lost central vision. He can no longer operate, and uh, how he handles that, and uh, uh, the grimness and maybe even finality of that situation, but still... His excessive despair that he had to be able to operate to be a worthwhile human being, how to address that, how to modify that. Um, so I think the reader is ready by chapter 9 actually to consider issues such as the inevitability of some disability, illness, death in oneself or others. And I, of course, uh, present some of my own sorrows and I think recoveries in the book because I don't have to disguise my own case. <laughs> And then, at the end, I take an unusual tactic, which I actually like, which is I save um, the 10 things you can do to increase satisfaction to the last chapter, because then it's kind of 
well, in spite of everything, with this, a realistic stance, there's things you can choose from to do that might be more satisfying. And now, maybe as you think about that, you can identify some of the habitual obstacles and set them aside and go, go ahead and try something. Yeah, I love the, the, the list of 10 things that to make you happy. It's a really great way to, to end this book. Um, could you talk about uh, about some of these and, and and which ones that you yourself particularly have used? I realized I could do those kind of like uh, the top 10 list. <laughs> and so starting with 10, which is I started with first in the chapters, is short order things. And then I end up with... Um, Number one, which is the tenth one in the order of the, the book, which is a, a long order because amongst the tools I'm giving in the lessons of the chapters is how do you time frame your thinking? When mm-hmm. do you think about the past? When do you think about the present? When do you think about the future? And how do you connect it? So the, the first one I deal with is the obvious one of enjoy your uh, satisfaction of any safe appetite. Enjoy sensations, whether it's um, um, John Denver, uh, I love the sunlight on my shoulder. In, enjoy it. Um, and then it kind of goes through uh, things such as enjoying your own achievements somewhere in the middle, but also uh, enjoy the achievements of others, which means, of course, getting through the obstacles of envy uh, and being able to enjoy, like, the history of music or the history of poetry. Or um, For me, I love uh, the history of sailing, and I love to sail, so the sensation of wind on my cheek is number one, a very short order pleasure I pursue, and but enjoying the fact that people invented the boat just gives me a certain amount of pleasure, how they, how they figured out how to rig it and uh, uh, how many words in the language are derived from that. The one that um, listeners might be interested in is the, uh, the one I see as the longest range satisfaction uh, at the end of the book is enjoying the flow of generations, knowing about your roots and knowing about your offspring or your legacy. It doesn't mean necessarily children and grandchildren, although I get a great deal of satisfaction from ours, but um, uh, it means um, seeing that your legacy go on. Let's say you've uh, done a garden for the corner of your city and that other people will enjoy it. That's a great sense of pride and self-esteem. And it's uh, it does no evil. One of the outstanding features of this book are the stories you tell, the the of the, the examples you give. It really helps us work through this in a in a you know ground the more abstract principles. Could you talk about uh, creating those and disguising them and writing them up so that they have that kind of power that they have in the book? I I knew. Um, from uh, my experiences in writing other books that uh, would teach psychotherapists that uh, w- without um, a kind of concrete and specific, it, it started here, it went to there, I- in a person, it didn't stick. And so I, I knew I had to have um, effective stories. Just like reading the newspaper, when it may be a profound... Uh, Thing on current history, but it starts with somebody who was there, uh, who had an experience. So um, I, I, uh, the frame of the book was really started with the stories. Also, I, 
uh, well, just like what I was saying about legacy, I wanted to leave a legacy to my children. They're grown up, but I want them to re read the book. So I put in a certain amount of autobiographical stuff uh, there. So a number of the stories are about me, and um, um, uh, all the way from um, uh, what happened to me when I was eight years old and uh, to what you mentioned about going to Alaska and and realizing how important intimacy was to me when I was basically in an isolated uh, position. And uh, then um, uh, I tried to pick stories across the whole lifespan, from young adulthood especially, uh, to uh, people uh, who were retiring or facing uh, end-of-life difficulties. Uh, all of them, I think, even though they uh, may bring uh, poignancy and other feelings, even poignant feelings I had writing them about sorrows I've had, still all of them have like, here's how you can um, go through these passages with courage and stamina, and that those are virtues that can be uh, fostered by the kind of exercises uh, given in the book. Marty Horowitz is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Francisco. His new book is A Course in Happiness. Thank you for joining me, Marty. It's been a pleasure talking with you. So there we were, Steve and I, smack in the middle of the same fight we'd had a million times before, a fight I knew so well I could graph it. We were halfway down the second slope of resignation, the place where we usually went to different rooms and despaired quietly on our own. And right at the moment that I thought, for the first time in seven years, that maybe things were just not going to work out after all, that was the moment he suggested we drive to Vegas right then and tie the knot. Now, I said, and he nodded with gravity. Now. We packed as fast as we could, hoping we could pack faster than those winged feet of doubt, driving 100 miles per hour in silence from sand to trees to mountains to dry plains to that tall electric glitter. Parked, checked in, changed clothes, held hands. Together, we walked up to the casino chapel, but as soon as Steve put his nose in the room, well, that's when those winged feet fluttered to rest on his shoulder. Reeling, he said he had a migraine and needed to lie down. An hour later, he told me, washcloth on forehead, that he had to fly home that instant, and could I drive back by myself? I stood at the doorway and watched him pack his nicest suit, folding it into corners and angles, his chest and legs and back and butt, in squares and triangles, shut and carried. Goodbye, we said to each other, and the kiss was an old dead sock. I spent the day there, floating in the glowing blue swimming pool in my brand new black swimming suit, cocooning myself in a huge white towel that smelled of sunshine, walking past tigers and dolphins. I slept diagonal on the king bed. After checking out, I went to the car, which was boiling hot, put my bag in the trunk and geared up the engine and turned on the air conditioner and pulled out of the parking structure. The road extended through the desert, a long dry tongue. I didn't feel like listening to music and was speeding along, wondering if to all people the idea of marrying felt so much like being buried alive, as in particular the idea of marrying this man did. 
anticipating the talks we were going to have to get to the point where we both admitted we were only in it out of loyalty and fear. My mouth dried up, and I had a sudden and very intense craving for a mango. I'd never eaten a mango in my life, but the craving was vast, sweeping, feverish. Great, I thought. It's not mango season, and it is not mango country, and I knew those bright-flavored gums would not cut it. After half an hour, the craving was so bad, I stopped at a gas station and tried anyway, brought a pack of that orange-pink candy, mango tango, but the taste of each flat circle, so sugary and similar to all the other sugar flavors, made me long for the real one even more. I stopped at every market I saw, but the fruit they had was pathetic. Soft, mealy apples, gray bananas, the occasional hard green plum. The road was quiet and empty of cars. I sped past gas stations and fast food. I was thinking seriously of driving straight to the airport and emptying my savings to fly myself to Africa so I could get one there, easy off the tree, the gentle give at the touch of my thumb. When far ahead, several miles up the road, I caught a glimpse of what appeared to be a shack. It was part of a tiny commercial strip facing a donut store and an oil lube filter station. From a distance, it looked colorful and lively, and as I got closer and closer, I thought I might be hallucinating from the heat because as far as I could tell, the front of the shack was full of trays and tables and shelves and piles of ripe, beautiful fruit. My mouth started to water, and I pulled over and parked my car on the shoulder of the road. The highway was still empty of cars, and the fast food donut chain was empty of cars, and the oil lube filter was closed, so crossing the street was a breeze. The awning of the store was a sweet blue and white gingham, and sure enough, there were huge tables burgeoning with fruit. Vivid clementines, golden apples, dark plums, swollen peaches, three patterns of yellow and brown pears. The awning said fruit and words. I went inside. I found a tan woman behind the counter perched on a stool, dusting a deep red apple with her sleeve. Hello, I said. Wow, you have such beautiful fruit here. She had a flat face, so flat I was scared to see her in profile. Hello, she said mildly. My hopes were swelling as I walked by a luscious stack of papayas, surging as I passed a group of starfruit, and then indeed next to a humble pile of four, I found the small sign that said what I wanted to hear. And there they were, gentle and orange, the smell emanating from their skin, so rich I could pick up a whiff from a distance. She nodded at me. They're very good, she said. Those mangoes are excellent quality. She placed the polished apple in front of herself like she was teacher and student all at once. <laughs> I scooped up all four and took them to the counter. I felt a wave of utter unearned competence. Ha ha to everyone else. Finding fresh mangoes 50 miles out of Las Vegas seemed to me in no uncertain terms like some kind of miracle. You have no idea how wonderful this is, I told her, beaming. I've been having the most powerful mango craving, and here we are in the desert of all places. She shrugged, agreeable. She'd heard this before. <laughs> Where do you get them, I asked. She picked at the point of her eye. I get the fruit as a trade, she said. There's a buyer who likes the salt here, so he brings me fruit as payment. What a deal for you, I said, getting all this gorgeous fruit for just a little salt. I brought a mango up to my nose and smelled the sweetness inside its skin. The woman sniffed. It's not regular salt, she said. She indicated behind me with her chin. Ah, I said, what's all that? Those are the words, she said. 
I kept my arms full of mangoes and took a step nearer. As far as I could tell, the entire back wall of the shop was covered floor to ceiling with cutout letters. They were piled high on shelves, making big words and small words crammed close together, letters overlapping. Go closer, she said. You can't see as well from here. She gave me a shove on my shoulder blade. As I approached, I could see that the words weren't just cut from cardboard. Each word was different. I first saw the word nut. It was a large capitalized word nut, and it was made out of something beige. I couldn't really tell what it was, but then I saw the word grass, which was woven from tall blades, green and thready, and lemon, cleverly twisted into cursive with peels and pulp, letting off a wonderful smell. So I went right up to nut and discovered that it was, in fact, crumbled pieces of nuts all mixed together into a tan, gluey paste. Isn't this interesting, I said to the woman. I found paper cut clean with an exacto knife and a calligraphied organdy fluffing out so frothy I could hardly read it, and hair, which was strawberry blonde and curled up at the edge of the H and the leg of the R. The man who'd left Las Vegas had strawberry blonde hair, so I ignored that one and picked up pearl instead. This is pricey, I bet, and she gave me an anxious look like I was going to drop it. It was stunning, not made of tiny pearls, but somehow one solid piece of pearl rippling out rainbow colors across its capitals. I put it back carefully on the shelf next to barnacle, prickly and dry looking. Why do you make these, I said. They're so beautiful. And they were. They were beautiful on their own, and they were beautiful altogether. I thought of her in her desert studio, her hands dusty, apron splattered, sweat pouring, hammering down the final O in radio. She was making the world simple. She made the world steady somehow. People like the words, she told me, picking up her apple to shine some more. I made them for fun, and then I got rich. <laughs> well, I'd definitely like to buy these four mangoes, I said. She pressed the register. Ten dollars. Just curiously, how much are the words? I kept my eyes on that wall, wanting to lean my head on pillow. Depends, she said. They vary. Plus, you see, those are just the solids. What? I stroked the petals that made up rose. I mean, those are just the solids. I put the solids on display first because they're the easiest to understand. Solid colors, I said, staring at plaid. Solid, solid, she said. Liquids are in the back. Gases are in the back of the back. Both are very pricey, she said, but I'll charge you just $3 to look. $3 for the tour. Liquid words, I said, and I brought out my wallet. She rang up my mangoes in the tour. I moved closer to the register. I think I'd like to buy a solid, too, I said. Suddenly, I was feeling more liberated than I had in seven years. I wanted to take over the store. I wanted to bathe in plum juice, rediscover my body, and adorn it in kiwi circles. I bit into a mango. The skin broke quick, and the flesh, meaty and wet, slid inside my mouth. The nearly embarrassing, free-for-all lusciousness of ripe fruit. Oh, I said, incredible. She gave me two dollars in change. I licked mango juice off my wrist and turned back to the words. Can I buy a solid, I asked. She shrugged. Of course, she said. Which one? I wanted them all, so I just pointed to the first I'd seen. How much for nut? Interesting choice, she said, walking over and pulling it off the shelf. Nut. There are seven different kinds of nuts in here. Macadamia, peanut, walnut, pecan, cashew, garbanzo, and almond. I raised my eyebrows impressed. Wow, I said. She just stood there. Isn't garbanzo a bean? I asked. <laughs> she held it out to me. I'll give it to you for 14, she said. Two dollars a nut. There was a 10 in my wallet between four ones, and I lifted them all out. 
I had another drippy bite of mango. I won't eat it, I told her, indicating nut. She gave me a lip smell and took my money. You can eat it, she said. I don't care. <laughs> Scooping all my purchases into a brown bag, she lifted a simple silver key off the wall behind her and beckoned for me to follow. We stopped at a gray door. Before she inserted the key, the woman put a hand on my sleeve. Be careful, she said. These are very delicate words. Don't drip mango on anything. I'd almost finished that first mango by now, the most incredible piece of food I'd ever eaten in my life, and I held the remains of the pit away from me. My lips were sticky with juice. I felt the horror of the Vegas trip dissipating, clarity descending like a window wrapped around my heart. She turned the knob, and I followed her in. The back room was a square with a glass door at the far wall. This room was full of shelves, too, but the words were even harder to read from far away. I walked quietly up to them. Don't touch, she hissed. The liquid words were set up in two ways. Most of them were shooting through glass pipes that shaped the letters. This looked really neat, but I felt a little bit like it was cheating. Some of the others were liquids spilled out on a glass board forming the letters. This was less cheating, but looked cheaper. I walked down the row. I was not thrilled by water or Coke. I was drawn to rubbing alcohol which was done with piping and took up almost a whole shelf. It was a good one because it looked just like the water, but I trusted that it wasn't. <laughs> there was one called poison, no specification, and the liquid was dark brown. The letters were fancy on that one, like an old-fashioned theater brochure. I found blood. Real blood, I whispered, and brought the mango back close to me, licked its pulpy pit. She nodded, of course. From what, I said, voice a little higher, and she didn't answer. It shot bright through the pipe as if in a huge, loose vein. I didn't like that blood one. I was recording all of this in a monologue in my head, and I wondered then who I would tell the story to, and for the moment I couldn't think of anyone. This made me feel bad, so I went over to Lake and held that, and it had little tiny ferns floating in it, and I thought it was pretty. It was next to Ocean, which was looking more or less exactly like Lake, and that's when I wondered if the woman was really truthful, and how would anyone know? I wanted to buy ocean, too. I wanted to have the word ocean with me all the time. It was way better than nut, but I didn't really trust it. It seemed likely that it was, deep down, tap. I paused by milk, the sole white liquid, soothing, just to look at. Gases, she said. Okay, I said. Sure, I'd like to see the gases. Why not? My hands were now hardening with stickiness, each finger gluing slightly to its neighbor. I wanted to wash them, but instead I dropped the gooey pit into my purse near the wallet. The woman gave me a disapproving look and brought out another silver key, this one from her pocket. She turned and clicked, and we went through the glass door in the back of the back room. The gas room was empty. Oh, I said, hmm. I worried for a second that she'd just been robbed and was just now finding out. Be very, very careful, she whispered then. This is expensive. She looked tense beneath her tan, each of her features tight in its place. More expensive than pearl, I said. Much more, she said. This takes very difficult concentration. This is my most challenging work. Look here, she said. Come here and look. She walked over to one of the shelves on the wall, and close up I could see there was more glass tubing. Not much, but one word's worth. It spelled smoke. Soft granules of ash floated through the M. It's a good one, I said. I like it. 
Most of them, she said, still whispering, in this room don't have the tubing. Oh, I bobbed my head, not understanding. See, she continued, there are many, many gas words in this room, but you might not be able to read them. I looked to the shelves and saw nothing, saw shelves that were empty, saw how my apartment would look in a month when Steve had cleared out his books and his bookends. Top shelf xenon, the woman said. It's there, it's just very hard to see. I can see it because I have very good eyes for it because it is my medium. I looked to the top shelf. There's no xenon there, I said. There's nothing. Trust me, she said, there's xenon. I shook my head. I shifted my feet a few times. There was poison in the room before, dark and available, and a thin wire of fear started to cut and coil in my stomach. Argon, she said, is on shelf four, below xenon. Noble gas number two, I said. She nodded. I prefer the noble gases. I bet, I said. There's no argon there, I said. It's there, she said. Be extremely careful. I spoke slowly, coated now in a very mild shellac of panic. How, I said, how can it be there? It would dissipate. I took chemistry. I can't just sit there. Argon, I said, can't just sit there. I put guidelines in the air, she said. I make a formation in the air. I turned toward the entrance. I think it's time for me to go, I said. Neon, she said, is on shelf number three. But right before I walked to the door, I reached out a hand which was so hard and gluey from the mango juice, reached out just to wipe it slightly on the very tip of the shelf. The coil in my stomach took my fingers there. I barely even noticed what I was doing. The woman drew in her breath in agony. Ah, she choked as I got in my little wipe wipe. You broke it. I broke what, I said. Broke what? You broke air, she said. You need to pay for it. You broke it. You broke air. Then she pointed to a sign I hadn't seen before, tucked half behind a shelf, a half-hidden laminated sign that said visitors must pay for broken merchandise. There's air there still, I said. That's no special air. It was air in the shape of air, she said. It took me a while to train that space. It was air. That's $300. What, I said, I won't pay that, I said, speaking louder. I didn't even break it. Look, there's tons of air around. There's air everywhere. And I waved my hand in the space, indicating air, and she let out another louder shriek. That was hope, she said. You just broke hope. <laughs> Hope, I said, and now I went straight to the glass door. Broke hope? Hope is not a gas. You can't form hope. The door, thank God, was unlocked, and I swung it open and stalked into the liquid room. The woman was right on my heels. I caught hope, she said. I made it into a gas. I want to go now, I said. There's no possible way to catch hope, please. My voice was gaining height. I didn't believe her, but still, of all things to wreck. Well, she said, I went to wedding after wedding after wedding in Las Vegas, and I capped the bottle each time right when they said, I do. <laughs> this made me laugh for a second, but then I had to stop because I thought I might choke. I could just see those couples now perched at opposite ends of a living room couch, bookending the air between them, the thickest, most formed air around, that uncrossable, unbreakable, impossible air, finally signing the papers that would send them to different addresses. I thought of the seven years I'd spent with Steve and how at first when we'd kissed, his lips had been a boat made of roses and how now they were a freight train of lead. So that I wouldn't cry, I put my hand near my face and made a pushing motion, moved some wind toward her. I'm queen of hope, I said. Here, have some of mine. She grabbed blood from the liquid room shelves. Give me my money for air, she said, waving the blood in my face. I opened the door to the solid room and ran through it. I kept my back arched so she wouldn't touch me. I couldn't pay the money, and I wouldn't pay it. It was air, for God's sake, but I didn't want that blood on me. Didn't want that blood anywhere close to me. I'm sorry, I yelled as I edged out toward the front. 
Sorry. I looked past the fruit to locate my car, and as I did, my eye grazed over the solid words, familiar now, but on the bottom shelf, I suddenly saw cat and dog in big brown capitals, which I had not seen before, and my stomach balked. The woman kept yelling, you owe me money, and I hit the dead warmth of the outside air. Everything was still. My car sat across the street waiting for me. The woman was right behind me yelling, you owe me $300, and I took nut out of my bag and threw it behind me where it broke on the street into a million shavings. Nut, I yelled. I got in my car, key shaking. Vandal, she yelled back, and she didn't even try to cross the street, but just stood at the front of the blue awning store with blood in her arms. And then she reached back and pelted my car with a tangelo and a pineapple and one huge hard cantaloupe. I locked my doors, and right when I put my key into the ignition, she took blood and threw that too. It hit the car square on the passenger side window, cracking on the top and opening up like an egg, dripping red down the window until the letters ran clear. Maybe it was just juice, but that one I trusted. That one seemed real to me. Hands trembling, I put my foot on the accelerator and the car started quickly, warm from the sunlight, the desert spreading out hot and fruitless. The window to my right was streaking with red now. I kept a hand on the car lock, making sure it was down, and across the street, the woman pulled back her arm, which was an awfully good arm, by the way. She was some kind of baseball superstar, and she let fly a few guavas, which splatted blue against my rear window. I drove away as fast as I could. The shack and the woman still throwing grew small in my rearview mirror. I drove and drove for 80 miles without pausing, just getting away, just speeding away as the blood dried on the window, away from the piles of tangerines and the starfruit clumped in stolen constellations from the seven different mutations of apple. In an hour, I desperately needed to go to the bathroom, so I pulled into a gas station. I still had the brown bag of mangoes with me. When I opened it up, they were all black and rotten, with flies crawling over them. I dumped the whole bag. The one I'd eaten was just a pit which I removed from my purse and kept on the passenger seat, but by the time I got home and pulled into the empty driveway, it too had rotted away into a soft, weak ball.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.